Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Almost Immortal History Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Powers. Many of us have heard of Senator Joe McCarthy and McCarthyism of the 1950s, when hundreds of individuals were brought before McCarthy's Senate committee and accused of being communist. It further perpetuated the Red Scare and cost so many people their livelihoods and good names. While McCarthy and McCarthyism have been immortalized infamously since then, what has not been immortalized is the story of the courageous senator from McCarthy's own party who stood up to him and helped pave the way for his downfall, all while providing America and the world a refreshing dose of conscience and character that was so sorely needed at that time. So sit back and enjoy the story and the focus of today's episode, Senator Margaret Chase Smith of Maine. The mood in the United States Senate chamber the afternoon of June 1st, 1950, echoed the mood in much of the country. Fear. Fear of speaking out. Fear of associating with the wrong people. Fear of being accused of communist. The Senate had convened at noon that day, and those present were listening to several senators make remarks about the ongoing communist concern. After patiently waiting her turn, and enduring one last nerve-wracking moment, her name was called. She rose, uneasily, but steadfastly to her feet, to deliver the speech of her lifetime. A speech that would come to define not only her legacy, but the legacy of the United States of America. A senator, only a year into her first term, she had yet to make a significant speech of any kind on the floor of the Senate. Out of 96 senators, 95 of them were men. She was the only woman. She was also a member of the Republican Party, the same party of the senator she was about to rebuke to the nation in stunning terms. She was not the likeliest of choices to deliver such monumental words in such a precarious moment, though nothing about Senator Margaret Chase Smith of Maine was likely. Not standing quite five foot four inches, Margaret Chase Smith was the shortest member of the Senate and one of the quietest, to say nothing of her being its only female member. However, neither her gender, nor her height, nor her reserve caused anyone who knew her to treat her with anything other than the utmost respect. Smith did not smoke or drink. Her vices instead were her work and her work ethic. They defined her and gave her purpose. She was the first in the office and the last to leave. She was a serious person and always wished to be taken seriously, though she also possessed a dry wit which could either boost a friend or level an opponent. Smith was ambitious and driven, but always principled and acting in accordance with a pure and honest conscience. She was not beholden to money, political bosses, or a want of fame. Defining her independence as a senator, she rarely tipped her hand as to which way she intended to vote on legislation, a tactic that caused great consternation among her colleagues and party leadership, but always ensured that her vote would be taken seriously and not for granted. While she could be thin-skinned and hold a grudge, she had an even-keeled temperament and was never forward, overbearing, or argumentative. Perhaps the habit she was known for best by millions of people around the world who had seen photos of her in newspapers, on television, or in person, was her trademark fresh red rose that she wore on her lapel every day without fail. She was a cold warrior and a fierce anti-communist. She believed that every minute we delay is a minute of progress for the communist. She voted to support the Marshall Plan, the House Un-American Activities Committee. She voted for contempt citations against the Hollywood Ten and most other early Cold War efforts to combat the growing Soviet threat abroad and at home. She possessed such confidence, conviction, and conscience because she had lived her whole life that way, a life that began in humble and simple surroundings, but with no indication whatsoever of who she would rise to become. Margaret Madeline Chase was born on December 14, 1897 in Skowhegan, Maine, a prospering mill and factory town. 
She was the fifth generation of chases from Maine, dating back to the mid-18th century, just before the Revolutionary War. Her grandfather, John Wesley Chase, fought for the Union Army in the Civil War, and her great-grandfather, Isaac Chase, in the War of 1812. Smith's upbringing in Skowhegan was normal for a lower-to-middle-class family in early 20th century New England. Her father, George Chase, was a barber. Her mother, Carrie Murray Chase, was to be the biggest influence in young Margaret's life. My father was a good father, Margaret said, but my mother was a wonderful mother. Margaret was the oldest of six children, three boys and three girls. Smith's parents were hardworking, barely educated, honest and proud, and their family and home meant everything to them. Growing up in Skowhegan for Margaret was stable and secure, but not without hardship and loss. As the oldest child, she was witness to two of her three brothers dying as little boys. Roland, age two, died of pneumonia, and Lawrence, not quite three, died of dysentery. Her parents and grandfather instilled the Maine and New England value of hard work into Margaret, a value that took precedent over all else. At 12 years old, Margaret approached the owner of Green Brothers, the local five and ten cent store about employment. The manager, rather than turn her away because of her age, told her to come back someday and when she could reach the six-foot-tall top shelves in the store. Determined, Margaret returned often to see how close she was. Only a year later, and who knows how many trips in between, Smith held the store manager to his word to become a part-time employee, even if she had to stand on her tiptoes to reach those top shelves. The same attitude of hard work and determination defined her teenage years, as she excelled on the high school basketball team and as a local fill-in telephone switchboard operator, spelling the full-time workers for $0.10 an hour or $1 for an all-night shift. During her operator shift, she came to know much about and be known by the residents of Skowhegan. A telephone operator in a small town like Skowhegan could easily listen in to the phone conversations, as it was the operator's job to open and close the lines. The operator was also the one who connected everyone in town during emergencies to doctors, police, and the fire station. One particular caller that got her attention called frequently, always at 7.45 p.m. He had a very pleasant voice. She came to learn it was Clyde Smith, the county's first selectman, a type of appointed town executive in New England. Pleasing, persuasive, and handsome, Clyde was a natural politician, and he took to it at an early age, becoming the youngest member of the Maine state legislature at the age of 22 in 1899. By the time he met Margaret in 1914, Clyde had also served as superintendent of schools, town sheriff, and a number of successful businesses. He also had been married and divorced. The divorce, by all accounts, was because Clyde was a ladies' man and had kept company with a number of other women during his five-year marriage. Clyde, 21 years Margaret Sr., fascinated her, and while it took the relationship 16 years to fully develop, they were eventually married in 1930. During those 16 years, Margaret continued to work as a telephone operator, then as head of circulation at the local newspaper, and finally, as the office manager at a local mill. All three jobs helped her develop professionally as well as personally. As she put it, I knew everyone in town, and they knew me. Her most important development came as she got more involved in various women's clubs, including the local business and professional women's club, which at only the age of 21 in 1923, she would become local club president, followed by becoming the youngest statewide president two years later, with one of her primary goals for the club, as she said, to get the girls up on their feet and say something. Despite Clyde's political positions and standing in Maine politics, Margaret credits her employer at the mill, Willard Cummings, as the one who first got her interested and engaged in public service. Cummings, himself active in local and state politics, got Margaret appointed to the Skowhegan Town Committee and then encouraged her to run for state committee, which she did, she won, and was re-elected twice. 
Clyde ran successfully for state elected office in 1932 and re-election in 1934, all the while with Margaret at his side. We were like a team, she said. Margaret ran all of the logistics of Clyde's campaigns, from coordinating appointments to correspondence and attending most of the campaign stops. She even did much of the driving from event to event. Not only did this broaden Margaret's perspective and introduce her to a great many people important in Maine political circles, but she also began to realize that she too possessed the necessary skills and interest to be a successful politician. Then in 1936, Clyde Smith ran for and won a seat in the United States Congress. For 39 years, Margaret's entire life had revolved around Maine. Now she was heading to Washington, D.C., and not just as a politician's wife, but she was to serve on his staff, although obtaining that staff position would come through a most awkward and unconventional way. Margaret, having already served as Clyde's most valuable campaign aide and asset, assumed she would continue to serve in that role as a paid member of Clyde's congressional staff. When Clyde declined because he feared he would be accused of nepotism, she went over his head and sent letters back to supporters in Maine to explain the situation. These supporters promptly told Congressman-elect Clyde Smith that they had voted for Margaret as much as for Clyde. With such overwhelming sentiment and clear support, the matter was settled. Margaret would become a paid member of his staff. As an official Capitol Hill staff member, Margaret was able to see the inner workings of Congress from all angles. Committee meetings, correspondence, legislation, campaigning, speech writing, and all manner of personal interactions and introductions. All of these experiences occurring in no ordinary time, but during the time of the Great Depression and the New Deal legislation of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Clyde was re-elected in 1938, again with Margaret's help on Capitol Hill and on the campaign trail back in Maine. In a time when very few women campaigned with their husbands, Margaret took ownership of the campaign, in many ways a de facto campaign manager. She helped own the list of voters, events, and schedule back home in Maine, as well as attend all of the events with Clyde. By the time of the 1940 election, Clyde's health had been in significant decline. He had a number of health issues over the years, including a heart attack in 1937. The attack was serious enough that doctors had encouraged him to either reduce his stress level and activity, or to simply not run again for re-election. Largely ignoring this advice, Clyde's health continued to deteriorate. As a result, Margaret stepped up her Capitol Hill and campaign activity on Clyde's behalf, including representing him at events. While attending one such event, the Maine Republican State Convention in April 1940, she received a call from Washington. Clyde had suffered another heart attack and that she should return at once. The doctor informed Clyde that the situation was grave and that he should get his affairs in order, including making known whether he had a preference for who should replace him in Congress. While his diagnosis wasn't necessarily terminal, it would most certainly be if he did not end his life as a politician immediately. When it was suggested that Margaret run in her husband's place, she initially pushed back. However, Margaret knew there were a number of potential replacements that might do more harm than good to Clyde's health and happiness, and more importantly, she also knew she could do the job. After brief meetings with some of Clyde's political allies, she was sufficiently convinced that she should do it, notwithstanding one of the senators from Maine who told Margaret not to worry because he had a man all ready to run instead. On the evening of April 8th, Clyde dictated to Margaret herself a statement of support for her to be his choice to replace him, stating, I know of no one else who has the full knowledge of my ideas and plans or is as well qualified as she is to carry out those ideas and my unfinished work for the district. Just a few hours after dictating the statement, Clyde Smith was dead. We didn't expect him to die, Smith said. When he signed the statement, he couldn't have been better. Despite her grief, and rather than let the weight of the world fall upon her, Margaret Chase Smith determined to pursue this opportunity as she had with all other professional opportunities in her life, with purpose 
and a determination that she was the most qualified for the position. While she was running as both a widow and a woman, she did not base her campaign on either. I am not asking for sympathy, she said, but instead for confidence and consideration. As Smith herself would often say, for the past five years, she had done everything a member of Congress would do except vote. Despite her qualifications for the job, it was still an uphill battle for a woman to win political office in 1940. Of the 30 women who ran for election to Congress that year, seven would win. Headlines and campaign slogans such as, A flick of the wrist and a smile won't do it, and These unsettled times meant Congress was a man's job were just examples of what the female candidates faced. Even though Smith won the special election primary by an 11-to-1 margin and then ran unopposed in the general election as the opposition party knew no one would beat her, the Boston Globe still quipped that Maine is sending a housekeeper. Two years later, in her first re-election campaign, Smith's opponent, Democrat Edward Beauchamp, urged her to, quote, get back to the pots and pans. Sentiment of the times notwithstanding, Smith was now Congresswoman Margaret Chase Smith, and she was not interested in being taken lightly. During Clyde Smith's time in office, domestic issues of the Great Depression had been the focus. For Margaret Chase Smith, World War II would be the defining issue of her time in the House. The buildup, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the entirety of the war and its aftermath, namely the beginning of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, would all occur on Smith's watch. Once in office, Smith was immediately witness to and an actor in significant historical events. She was present for Franklin Delano Roosevelt's famous State of the Union in 1941, calling for America to become the arsenal of democracy in aiding the British against Hitler and the Axis powers through a proposed Lend-Lease Act. Despite her party's strong opposition, Smith voted in favor of the bill, as she did with several other pre-war measures, such as arming ships carrying American trade and extending the Selective Service Act that authorized a potential wartime draft. When Smith would vote against the majority of her party, she always did so as a matter of principle and conscience. In this case, she believed strongly in the need for military preparedness and the defeat of Hitler's expanding empire, while still hoping America could remain out of a deadly war. Smith's prescient views on military preparedness and internationalism would be vindicated on December 7, 1941, as the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The next day, Smith witnessed FDR's Date Which Shall Live in Infamy address and call to war during a joint session of Congress and thus knew she had been on the right side of history. Smith's successful congressional service continued throughout the war. Every two years, she was re-elected by wide margins and, in what became a trademark, inexpensive campaigns, totaling only about $2,000 on average. Smith became the first woman to be appointed to the powerful Naval Affairs Committee, later to become the Armed Services Committee. This assured Smith of having a strong voice in an area that was critically important to her home state, with its naval bases, shipbuilding industry, significant Atlantic coastline, and frontline position to any potential naval assault from Hitler's U-boats. Smith furthered her experience in military affairs when she became the first female member of Congress to join a seven-member subcommittee on a military inspections trip to investigate and propose solutions to the overcrowding and price gouging around five naval bases across the country. It was on this trip that Smith would meet William Chesley Lewis, who would become Smith's closest professional and personal partner. At 30 years old in 1947, 15 years Smith's junior, Bill Lewis was already a man of significant education, experience, and accomplishment. He had the rare distinction of serving in the Army as a West Point cadet, an officer in the Navy during World War II, and as a reservist in the Air Force after the war for the remainder of his professional career, rising to the rank of Major General. In addition to his military background, Lewis also received an MBA from Harvard and practiced law. 
Lewis was the Navy's representative and advance man, helping to coordinate the seven Congress members as they toured the naval facilities and surrounding areas, as well as to staff the hearings that were held at each of the bases. The delegation would have dinner together most nights. Once finished, the six male congressmen would depart for outside excursions, to which Smith was either not invited, not interested in attending, or both. As a result, Lewis and Smith would end up alone and would take long walks getting to know one another. Smith would take another highly publicized tour, this one for three weeks in December 1944, to Pearl Harbor, Guam, Samoa, and Australia. While on the tour, she met with the officers and soldiers in the Pacific Theater and came away with a clear-eyed and sobering view that much was needed to finish the job and strengthen the morale of the men. From more ships to more medical supplies and facilities for the wounded, she said, you cannot imagine it unless you see it. She implored Americans back home with service members abroad to write, 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 because mail from home is what they want more than you will ever know. In a heartwarming gesture to practice what she preached, Smith took the names of soldiers she met from Maine and promised to call their parents on Christmas morning, which she did. The tour brought Smith not only more valuable experience, but, as the only woman, considerable attention and popularity, as had her domestic tour the year earlier. If she wasn't already, she was now and thereafter to be viewed as a naval affairs expert. There were even some who suggested Smith might be in the running as an undersecretary of the Navy, which most certainly would have been a first in 1940s America. While Smith made it a point to not want to be labeled a feminist, she did much, not only by her example, but through her actions, to help elevate women's role in the war effort and society at large. She proposed legislation that was ultimately enacted by the War Department that would open opportunities previously unheard of for women in the defense industry. Smith put it simply that, Half the population cannot be left out if the defense effort is to be effective, and the roles she imagined were not so much shouldering guns or driving tanks or wearing uniforms, but in serving their country in whatever way made the most sense. Smith also proposed legislation to elevate women in uniform by allowing them to serve overseas, obtain better benefits, and achieve higher military rank. In response to a congressman who suggested that women would find hardships overseas that no American woman should have to endure, Smith replied bluntly, and bring all the nurses home. After winning her third re-election in 1946, Smith set her sights on something bigger, the Senate in 1948. Before being the first to announce her candidacy on June 1, 1947, Smith went to Oklahoma, the home of Bill Lewis and his parents, to recruit Bill to help her win. Smith and Lewis had grown closer since their 1944 initial meeting, and Smith knew help from Bill Lewis would be critical to her in both the campaign and in office if she were to win. Smith's primary opponents for the Senate race were no less than Sumner Sewell, a former two-term governor and war hero of both World Wars I and II, and the current governor of Maine, Horace Hildreth, popular in the state and out as the head of the National Governors Association. In response to the suggestion by some party officials that Smith back out to save herself potential embarrassment, Smith said coolly, Why should I? I was there first. As was her custom in her four house races, Smith's campaign frugality was employed again, spending less than $4,000 in utilizing her mother's house with her mother still occupied in it as the campaign headquarters. The issue of gender arose again. Some comments were whispered and covert, though many others were loud and overt. It was openly discussed as to whether the Senate was a place for a woman, including by former Governor Sewell's own wife, who said, Why take a woman to Washington when you can get a man? The senior senator from Maine, Owen Brewster, referred to Smith as that girl, and one writer said she was a modest, gray-haired little person. Smith used such commentary and positioned it as a direct challenge to every woman in Maine. To further drive home the point, Smith gave a speech called, What is a Woman's Place? Everywhere, she said in response to her own question, 
in the home as wives and mothers, in organized civic, business, and professional groups, in industry and business, and in government and politics. Smith never wanted to be voted for or against simply because she was a woman. She had worked hard over the past eight years in Congress and the entirety of her life to prove that she was the most qualified, most principled, and hardest worker for this job or any job she ever held or would ever pursue. Smith benefited greatly from her congressional colleagues who heaped praise on her during the campaign, lending her significant credibility. California Congressman Leroy Johnson said, No one in the House has greater goodwill among the members. And the Maine Sunday Telegram reported that, to a man, Congress was pulling for Smith. As primary election day drew nearer, what was evident in the race, despite the quality of the opponents, despite the shoestring operation that defined her campaigns, and despite the sexism that was ever prominent running against male opponents, was that Margaret Chase Smith was the one candidate Maine voters preferred. Voters saw themselves in her, and even those who didn't still trusted her character, her work ethic, and her results for the state of Maine. As her house colleague Francis Bolton put it, Smith was liked by everyone who knew her. But what is far more important is she is respected as few other members of Congress are respected. On primary election night, Smith would go on not only to win, but in shocking fashion to all involved, receiving more votes than the three other candidates in the race combined. Republican presidential challenger and governor of New York, Thomas Dewey, asked the newly minted Republican Party's Wonder Girl, as she was now referred to, if she would campaign for him across four states, which she happily did. Smith parlayed her successful primary win into a trouncing general election victory against her Democratic opponent, Adrian Skolton, winning with over 71% of the vote and the largest vote total, with more than 159,000 in the history of Maine elections. Most significantly, she achieved something that had not occurred yet in the 160 years of the Republic. With her victory, Margaret Chase Smith became the first woman in American history to win election to both houses of Congress. The historic victory landed her on the cover of U.S. News & World Report and countless newspapers and magazines telling her story. On January 3, 1949, the 17 newly elected senators, including Smith, along with future President Lyndon Baines Johnson and future Vice President Hubert Humphrey, gathered at the Capitol to be sworn into office together. Upon entering the Senate chamber, Smith was surprised to be greeted by applause from the gallery filled with women who had come to witness the historic swearing-in. To Smith's greater surprise, her new Senate colleagues joined in the applause as they too recognized and appreciated the history of the moment. I'm naive enough to admit to you that I can hardly realize I am not in a wonderful dream, Smith would remark later that day. I was elected in spite of being a woman, and that in itself was a victory for all women, for it smashed the unwritten tradition that the Senate is no place for a woman. Soon after her swearing-in, Smith was appointed to the prestigious Republican Policy Committee, an unheard-of gesture toward a freshman senator. The party issued a public statement that Smith's appointment showed full and equal participation by women in political affairs. She also continued writing. This time, rather than a newsletter home, it was a nationally syndicated daily column, the only senator to have such a platform. She was, by all measures, even as a freshman senator, a political star and phenomenon. The Associated Press named her Woman of the Year in politics, and Gallup listed her as one of the ten most admired women in the world. There was even talk of Smith as a potential vice presidential choice in 1952. When the question was put to her in early 1949 by CBS reporter Bob Trout what she would do if she woke up one morning and found herself in the White House, Smith deftly deflected by saying, I'd go right to Mrs. Truman, apologize, and go home. While Smith voted with her party the majority of the time, she also continued to show her streak of independence. 
Breaking with her party in one of her first significant votes in the Senate, she voted in favor of the North American Treaty Organization, or NATO, the newly proposed Cold War alliance between the United States, Canada, and ten strategic European allies. It was also during her first year in the Senate, Smith, through both committee assignments and informal Washington gatherings, would come to know fellow Senator Joe McCarthy. While they got along well in their initial interactions in 1949, neither could predict what history would have in store for them the following year. 